Hello and welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Whether you've been tuning in since our earliest episodes or our new listeners, thank you all for joining me. As we begin our third season, I want to share some thoughts on the purpose of our podcast and the impact of our past two seasons. With each episode, we've had the opportunity to be in conversation with a range of diverse practitioners from more than 20 countries. These practitioners have collectively worked with more than 30 different international development or humanitarian aid organizations in more than 80 countries. Some have spent most of their career working in emergency and humanitarian settings. Others have experiences working to support the transition from emergency or humanitarian responses to development programming. And others have only worked in non-emergency and development settings. Some have experiences working in headquarters, others only in the field. Some started as national staff and became international staff. Others have chosen to specialize in one specific region. All this is to highlight that each guest has had their own unique professional journey. In our conversations, we speak to guests about their own positionality and career trajectories and personal experiences as a way to highlight how they each navigate ethical and systemic challenges prevalent in the sector in their own way, as well as what they think should change for the better. Whenever we generalize or use terms like international development and humanitarian aid sector or industry, we do so with the understanding that there are many shades of gray and that each person has had many different experiences. Some of the common themes that come up in our conversations include navigating workplace hierarchies and power dynamics, collaborating with diverse stakeholders with competing agendas, building political will, negotiating complex partnerships, measuring the impact of programs, learning from mistakes, doing no harm, ensuring accountability, struggling with funding sources and conditions, resisting gender, racial, and other forms of discrimination and violence, and much more. While discussing the micro and macro ways that these issues manifest in the daily working lives of practitioners has been and will continue to be central to our episodes, in our third season, we aim to more clearly acknowledge how challenges and dynamics within international development and humanitarian aid work are embedded within broader historical and global power dynamics and socioeconomic systems of domination and exploitation that have been shaped and reshaped over time and that continue to inform local, national, regional, and international relationships through our governments, institutions, families, and ourselves. Our past episodes have often implicitly, if not explicitly, addressed the various ways in which international development and humanitarian aid challenges are rooted in historical and current-day systems of neocolonialism, imperialism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, ableism, ageism, and capitalism. As we share your stories, lived experiences, and personal reflections, we want to more clearly speak to these histories and systems. Whenever we call out a lack of diversity in leadership positions, we call out white supremacy, racism, sexism, and ableism. Whenever we call out savior complexes, we also call out colonialism and imperialism. Whenever we call out a lack of adequate or long-term funding, we call out capitalism. 
And very importantly, as Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw teaches us with her theory of intersectionality, we also witness and experience firsthand how these systems intersect and how they continue to shape our mainstream values, our work cultures, our internalized notions of good and bad, our sense of selves, our imaginations, as well as the dynamics of our resistance and struggles for social justice. Often, we don't even realize how, for example, capitalist patriarchy can shape our understandings and knowledge systems, limit our creativity, and stifle our ability to imagine more just alternatives. Through a myriad of both subtle and overt, unconscious and conscious, repetitive, rewarded, and violent ways, we internalize its logic and its values. Whether we are aware of this or not, it causes us to perpetuate harm to different degrees. Ultimately, all these systems work through and are upheld by each of us as individuals. In the past two seasons, we have been fortunate to feature diverse practitioners who each have their own unique values, motivations, and understandings. Needless to say, even amongst colleagues, not everyone is in it for the same reason or believes in the same values. There is a spectrum of opinions about what is the right thing to do and strategies for impact. While some are working towards sustainable development, others are working towards social justice, and these phrases mean different things to each one of us. And of course, despite what they may claim to believe, not everyone walks the talk. As Kamla Basin taught us, many of the power dynamics and social issues that our organizations are dedicated to addressing also live within us and within our colleagues and frequently show up in our behaviors and work relationships. We have a hierarchy between North and South. We have a hierarchy between whites and non-whites. We have a hierarchy between men and women. And this hierarchy reaches the international organizations from our families. In my family and your family, there is perhaps a hierarchy between your brother and you. And if that brother becomes a UN person, I mean, he's not going to change his whole life's training at home, that he is superior to his sister, father is superior to the mother. So my focus, Safa, has always been that we have to begin with ourselves. We have to begin with our families. Only then will these values of gender equality, class equality, caste equality, race equality, only then will it permeate up. Beginning with ourselves necessitates that we do the never-ending inner work of, as Frantz Fanon teaches us, decolonizing our minds, dismantling our internalized bias, and becoming more aware of how we strategically use, benefit from, align with, and reinforce systems of power in our daily actions. From that process, we can become better allies and better practitioners. While this inner work is often neglected, we see and experience how many of the issues our organizations try to address, such as gender-based violence, corruption, nepotism, and racism in the countries that we work in, are also issues that we continue to frequently experience within our sector and within our organizations and work relationships. None of us is immune to simultaneously navigating both our privileges and oppressions. Whether we are in a managerial position or junior staff members, we all continually exercise our own power and privilege knowingly or not, even as we work to support and empower the communities we work in. As Mahrukh Hassan recently shared, it's not about asking yourself if you're racist, it's about asking how racist am I? Similarly, we all have different motivations for working in the sector. 
Some entered the sector having lived through war, forced displacement, poverty or natural disasters, and aim to work to support their local communities and address the issues they themselves have faced in their lives or continue to face. Others are in service of their national foreign policy interests and the interests of governments and donors. Some are in the service of their own career ambitions. While quantitative and qualitative impact is the purpose for some, others are motivated primarily by ambition and power. For many, it's a combination of different reasons. Both in the sector and beyond, some believe gradual reform can be the answer, but others believe that systemic and meaningful change cannot be achieved without a radical shift in global socioeconomic systems. Sometimes, guests have shared how they try to balance or bridge their professional work with their more personal activist organizing and actions. Some have had to reconcile or curb their personal beliefs or urges to take political stances with the guidelines and restrictions that some organizations understandably have for their staff's involvement in activism and political organizing with the need to be neutral when working as international civil servants. We often speak about the tension between short-term responses, band-aid solutions, and more immediate crisis mode responses versus long-term solutions and changes. For many who have been working in this field for decades, they've witnessed cycles of crisis leading to some level of aid and support and development, followed by another crisis. As Dr. Berniski taught us, there are peaks and valleys to aid and development work. In most cases, International development agencies try and make a commitment and, you know, we develop strategic plans for the countries that we work in, you know, what our role is in the agency, what our relationships with other institutions, with donors, with the government. And so that there's usually a, a strategic plan working over a long period of time. And then you try and incorporate what we call an exit plan so that, you know, what are the indicators to know when you're organization has done its job in the country and capabilities have been increased and, you know, it's time to pack up the bags and leave, right? And so we try and develop those types of, of plans where there's, you know, you come in, you, you, you're working in a country, you've got a strategic plan over a number of years, and then you have a plan for phasing out. So that's what organizations try and do. Whether that can be accomplished depends upon the donor community in the end, because, you know, if funding's available, you can do that. A lot of organizations pack up their bags when the funding sources dry up. You know, the donors are no longer see the country as a priority. And so this whole thing about coming in and going out, you know, some countries may be stable for a moment, and then they go into conflict, and then, you know, everything that you've tried to accomplish in terms of development in countries such as in the Middle East, you know, they... It's it's a yo-yo for them. You're, you go through peaks and valleys and you, you rebuild and then everything's destroyed by conflict. You come in and emergency, you transition to development, you make progress, conflict occurs again. And so that's that's a huge issue. As these cycles continue, we also understand and respect that for many practitioners, publicly speaking critically about their body of work can be both triggering and unsafe. There is a culture of silence that looms large. Sometimes invited guests do not feel comfortable to speak honestly about the problematic, toxic, and sometimes traumatic issues that they have faced in their careers for decades out of a fear of reprisal. Some have to be careful to measure their words and be delicate with how they express themselves. They fear backlash from their supervisors, organizations, and partners. 
They fear the negative impact it can have on their organizations, career, and livelihood. Indeed, for many, speaking the truth is a privilege. However, neither the issues we discuss or the suggested actions and solutions to them are necessarily new. For decades, many committed and hardworking practitioners, their counterparts, and so-called beneficiaries have been speaking truth to power and resisting oppressive and violent ideas, behaviors, colleagues, programs, organizations, and systems. So, as we continue to have these critical conversations on the podcast, we acknowledge and are grateful to countless leaders, teachers, and former colleagues who challenged injustice in their time and in their own way, both in the sector and in other ways and spaces. They serve as role models, mentors, and sources of inspiration for many of us. And because the challenges we face in the international development and humanitarian aid sector are embedded in broader histories and systems, we want to open our platform to hear from those working in different sectors on related issues. Rethinking development cannot happen without engagement with these thinkers and doers as well. In order to speak to root causes and systemic issues more explicitly, we are excited to announce that our third season will feature some episodes that are inspired by teach-ins, where we will be speaking with activists, authors, artists, and academics about topics such as indigenous future-making and decolonial praxis, race and empire, ecofeminism, capitalism and financial systems, disability justice, and intersectionality. As we sometimes speak to on the podcast, there are countless tools, strategies, and approaches to achieving social change. International development and humanitarian aid work is one path of many. By mapping international development and humanitarian aid within broader systems, we aim to move beyond conversations that focus on symptoms and better explore and critique root causes as well as collaborative ways forward. In the coming weeks, we will be sharing these new types of episodes in between our usual episodes. Looking back over the past two seasons, there are some themes that were common to many of our conversations. Practitioners often spoke about some key barriers as well as skills and practices that are central to their work or need to be rethought. An overarching barrier is the lack of adequate and long-term funding and economic resources for many organizations and individuals doing important and vital work in different communities around the world. Both those working in smaller organizations and NGOs as well as larger UN agencies or consultancy forms or other types of setups shared the challenges they face, such as qualifying for, competing for, and securing long-term funding or fulfilling the conditions that sometimes come with funds, to name a few challenges. Often Black, Indigenous, and people of color who have the expertise, lived experience, networks, passion, and positionality to lead the SDG agenda forward in their local communities struggle to access the funds and resources necessary to sustain and grow their critical work and efforts. No amount of skills and practices, such as participatory approaches, trust building, or listening, can fully substitute for long-term substantial funding of local leaders for social change. Often when we speak about shifting the power, we're in a large part referring to economic power. We'll address issues related to shifting economic power in one of our teach-ins. But other skills and practices are also important in their own way and need to be fostered. Countless past guests have reiterated the importance of sincere and active listening in building healthier professional relationships and collaborations. Listening is an essential practice, and I say practice as it is something that we have to commit to actively doing on a daily basis. Listening requires time and a suspension of what we think is possible, is right, is correct, is best, is technically appropriate or recommended, 
Listening is an opportunity to witness and try to understand the lived experiences and expertise of those we are trying to work with. It can help us better understand the realities, needs, and ideas of others. By listening to different perspectives and the feedback others share with us, no matter how uncomfortable that makes us, we can better understand the impact of our words and actions and learn how to be better and do better. Listening can also support another essential practice, that of building trust. Building trust is key to any healthy relationship. It is another essential element often spoken about by past guests. As Lisa Perch shared with us, I think one of the key tools is listening and listening with as open a mind as possible, listening for opportunities where you can probe further. And But as I said, a key part of that is building trust. Building trust includes being accessible, understanding that you're there to help, but you're not there with all the solutions. The solutions you're likely to come up with are solutions that probably uh, have already been thought of. What you may be providing is the glue that sticks, you know, the wood to another piece of wood, or you may be providing the link between, you know, a feeder road and the market and other markets. So in some cases, humility is also a key tool to have as much as we want to contribute and want to make a difference. Sometimes the people in the community have already come up with ideas. What they're missing are sometimes how to connect those dots or where the opportunities lie, and that's what you bring to the table. Another tool, I think, is also understanding the power and influence dynamics in a community. And when I say community, I don't mean just a geographic community. I mean understanding a community as a sector. For example, if you're working in energy, understanding in the energy sector, who are the power players, who are the influence players, who are the people who've never really had a chance? If you're saying that you're going to be involved in sustainable energy, well, of course, you want to encourage and maintain and bolster and scale up what front runners have already done. You also want to make sure that people who are not normally involved, not normally engaged, uh, or who have had little opportunity can have more of an opportunity. And so it's also looking at how you balance those kinds of elements as well. Some sound social analysis and gender analysis, I think is important. Understanding what the gender dynamics are in any issue, I usually find to be quite useful because it doesn't just tell you about gendered roles and responsibilities, which are important, or the differential participation of men and women. It usually helps to understand things like age differentiation, rural and urban differentiation, class differentiation, ethnicity differentiation, disability and ability differentiations. It usually tends to open up a door where you can actually see how these issues intersect. I think one of the challenges we've often have is that sometimes we put these categories into separate boxes as if somehow they affect different people at different times. The reality is that those who are perpetually or, you know, continually and chronically challenged or poor or vulnerable is because they're being affected by several different challenges at the same time. You need to kind of understand that and better plan. And to do that, you have to listen. As important as listening and building trust is, it's also important to note that trust is not built in a vacuum. Historical and contemporary power dynamics shape the limits and possibilities of trust in any given moment. For many oppressed and marginalized communities, histories of often state-sponsored violence have taught us to be wary of saviors or those who claim to know what's best or want to help, but that often cause harm and take more than they give. As many leaders have stated, trust does not trump racism. Often trust is absent because of dominating and exploitative structures that have historically and continuously informed our relationships. 
trust cannot be built on the shifting sands and implicit and explicit violence of eurocentrism white supremacy heteropatriarchy ableism ageism and racism there are no shortcuts to trust it's built over time through sincerity and accountability accountability requires practice humility and frank discussions on harm done mistakes made the limits of our knowledge and our lack of respect it requires unflinching introspection in one of our teachings we'll be speaking further about accountability another common theme of past episodes has been the hierarchies that exist amongst staff members within organizations the differential treatment of national staff versus international staff as well as experiences of racism casteism classism and gender discrimination among staff are concerns for many while the issues of differential pay grades benefits titles professional development and training opportunities and job security persist another issue is the often lack of celebration acknowledgement and attribution of credit to national colleagues and staff members the expertise labor and high personal risks that many national colleagues take are often not acknowledged awarded compensated and celebrated in a systematic way that shifts power and national colleagues who go on to become international staff members sometimes continue to experience how hierarchies play out in their career paths throughout all our conversations with past guests ethics has been central questions have always tried to address the ways in which practitioners navigate ethical concerns in their daily work in an effort to do the right thing moment to moment in the field and on the ground as hugo slim taught us people were talking about these things they weren't necessarily describing them as ethics or moral they were just saying you know what's the right thing to do and are we being instrumentalized are we being abused whatever whatever so the conversations were all there they weren't necessarily labeled as ethical at the time and a lot of a lot of that persists a lot of these conversations are just hard rational decisions and, and problems sometimes which people don't bother to call ethical and you don't have to call them ethical so long as you're trying to work out what is the right thing to do whether you call it ethics morals guiding principles doing the right thing allyship solidarity whatever values guide your beliefs actions and behaviors it is important to be conscious of them reflect on them and critically interrogate them there are many other themes that can be traced back throughout our past episodes and although i haven't touched on all of them today i invite you all to take the time to listen to any of the past episodes you might have missed However, while our podcast is primarily dedicated to facilitating conversations about ethics and making space for sometimes uncomfortable and challenging reflections, we have also often spoken with guests about their professional successes, times when things have gone well, impactful initiatives, accomplishments, and moments of pride and cooperation that are also important to recognize and celebrate and that give us hope. Indeed, initiatives such as the Gapminder Foundation have tracked positive global development statistics and trends over the past decades. Frequently, trends such as more widespread implementation of normative frameworks for human rights, decreases in maternal, infant, and under five mortality rates, polio eradication, increased girls' enrollment in education, increased universal access to water, sanitation, and hygiene, decreased rates in the number of those living in absolute poverty, and more are cited to argue that global development has had positive results. While we celebrate these very important positive steps forward in the realization of human rights and social justice, we focus our efforts in this podcast on facilitating conversations on the many ways we should and could be doing better. 
While we don't have all the answers, by speaking to practitioners who are committed to this work and shining a light on ethical issues, which for some are blind spots, and promoting the rethinking of often taken-for-granted systems, tools, and practices, we encourage critical and systems thinking, inquiry, and dialogue. I myself facilitate these conversations with humility and an acute awareness of the limits of my own knowledge, my own privileges, and my own shortcomings. And I'm grateful to all our guests and contributors who shared their lived experiences and personal reflections with all of us. Finally, over the past two seasons, we have also watched with gratitude as our audience has grown. We now have listeners of different ages tuning in from over 120 countries. While some are at the start of their careers as practitioners, others are veterans. And some don't work in this sector but are curious to listen in on the conversations. Many of you have written to us to express your gratitude to past guests for their honesty and generous insights. We thank all our listeners for tuning in and encourage you to share your own reflections with us as well. There are three main ways in which you can do that. Number one, you can go on our website and leave us a voice message sharing a two to four minute anecdote related to one specific experience you had navigating an ethical issue in the sector. The homepage of our website has a leave us a message button that explains how to do that in more detail. Number two, you can send us a short letter addressed to your younger self at the time when you first began to work in the sector. What do you wish you had known then? What would you tell your younger self? We will try to read out the letters in our future episodes and play some of the voice messages. And of course, we always invite you to comment on our social media platforms and sign up for our newsletters. Through your voice messages and letters, we hope to include even more perspectives on our platform. Every one of us has important experiences and thoughts to share and we want to make space for that. If you would like to support our team and the work we do behind the scenes, we also welcome donations as they help us cover our production costs and the many hours that go into planning, recording, editing, transcribing, and publishing our content. You can donate by visiting our website and pressing the donate button. Thank you again for tuning in and I look forward to sharing our third season with you in the weeks to come. Until then, take care and stay in touch.